This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists. Hey, I'm your co-host Pranav Rajpurkar. And I'm Adrielle Saporta. And you're listening to the AI Health Podcast. Today, we're going to dive into some cutting-edge research with our guest, Dr. Emma Pearson, on racial inequality in medicine and some of the ways that this has manifested during COVID-19. I'm excited. So we're going to cover three exciting research papers today, and our guest describes these deeply technical problems and solutions in a very accessible way. We'll do a quick overview of these papers that we'll be covering during our interview today and dive right in. Let's do it. So we'll start with a paper that examines racial inequality in COVID-19 testing. Should we give the listeners a little background or a teaser on what this paper is all about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So a widely used metric in monitoring COVID-19 outbreaks is the positivity rate. And that's defined as the fraction of COVID-19 tests which are positive. So a low positivity rate suggests that an area has enough testing to properly monitor its outbreak, while a high positivity rate suggests under-testing. And it's been shown that Black populations have a higher positivity rate than white populations. And one of the contributions of Emma's paper is exposing a flaw in using the positivity rate as a metric for assessing racial disparities in under-testing. The paper instead suggests using Bayesian threshold tests, which draws on literature measuring racial disparities in policing. So now the second paper we'll dive into was published in Nature in November 2020, And this looks at modeling how COVID spreads, which I found fascinating. This work models the spread of COVID in 10 of the largest U.S. metropolitan areas using mobile phone data and mapping the hourly movements of 98 million people from neighborhoods. We'll talk about how the methods and findings here can inform which places are safe to return to and how much activity to allow. One of the interesting analyses in this paper is what research finds on the demographic disparities in this data set, quantifying how different reopening strategies affect disadvantaged groups. Wow, policy responses to COVID-19 have been so varied, and I'm really curious how the findings of this research study were perceived. Definitely. Finally, the third paper we'll dive into uses deep learning to explore the relationship between underserved populations and pain. As background, We know that underserved populations experience higher levels of pain and that this difference persists even after controlling for objective severity of, let's say, knee disease as graded by human physicians using medical images. Now, this raises the possibility that underserved patients' pain stems from factors external to the knee, such as stress. We'll chat about this work published in Nature Medicine that uses a deep learning approach to measure the severity of osteoarthritis by using knee x-rays to predict patients' experience pain. In this study, the researchers find that this approach dramatically reduces unexplained racial disparities in pain. The researchers also show that the algorithm's ability to reduce unexplained disparities is rooted in racial and socioeconomic diversity of the training set. I am super excited to chat about these three papers. So without further ado, let's dive into our interview with Dr. Emma Pearson, who's a senior researcher at Microsoft Research and an incoming assistant professor of computer science at Cornell Tech. 
She develops data science and machine learning methods to study inequality and healthcare. Emma, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you've done a ton of really extraordinary work exploring the ways in which machine learning can exacerbate already existing health disparities. And before we dive into some of that recent work, can you maybe tell us what motivated you to focus on this area of ML in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think my interest in my two application domains of healthcare and inequality is very much driven by my own personal experience. Um, initially, my interest in inequality had to do with being a woman in a pretty male-dominated world. And then later, it sort of broadened to encompass other dimensions of inequality, like racial or socioeconomic inequality. And my interest in healthcare is sort of driven by my own medical history and a history of genetic mutations. And so that has sort of sparked my curiosity in these two areas. That combined with just intellectually the fact that they're hugely impactful. And can you maybe talk about some of the high level patterns and trends that you've seen in terms of inequality and health disparities in ML? Well, I think one thing which is interesting is that inequality sort of impacts everything. Like if I had told you a priori, like in December of 2019, you know, a mysterious virus is going to emerge in China. Is it going to affect people at unequal rates in the United States? I don't know. Looking at history, you could probably say without knowing anything about the virus that it probably would because healthcare disparities are everywhere. And I think that's one of the things that makes them so important to study. Do you think it's the factor of those health disparities already existing and then ML is just sort of mirroring those health disparities? Or do you think there are sort of new ways in which ML is creating biases that we should be aware of? Yeah, well, I think certainly you know, computer science practitioners and the general public are becoming increasingly aware that machine learning, naively implied, applied, can exacerbate biases, right? So, for example, you know, you have this nice work from Zia Dobermeyer and, and various others showing that, you know, if you train a healthcare algorithm to try to predict people's risk and you use cost as a proxy for risk, you're going to create an algorithm which is racially biased because black patients cost less than white patients due to differential access to care, even if they're equivalently sick, right? And so that's a case where sort of this machine learning model due to poor choice of label is potentially exacerbating these biases. So it's not just that these biases exist in the world, it's also that models, if improperly applied, can exacerbate them. And there are many other examples of this as well, of course, that we could discuss. I think equally important to keep in mind, though, is sort of this more optimistic counterpoint, which my own work pursues, which is that machine learning and data science also offer us ways to mitigate or alleviate or understand bias. And that, to me, is a really exciting notion and a reason for cautious optimism even as we keep these clear examples, more negative examples in mind. Um, and one of your recent papers examines racial inequality in COVID-19 testing. And I want to dive into that piece of research with you. So you talked about some of the examples of there being large racial disparities in healthcare. And we've talked previously on the show about systematic racism as being entrenched in the data. Could you describe how you got to your findings on this piece of work about racial inequality in COVID-19 testing? Yeah, totally. So a frequently 
uh, examined statistic in COVID-19 is what's called the positivity rate, which is the fraction of tests that come back positive. So number of positive tests divided by number of tests. And basically the intuition here is, you know, higher positivity rate suggests potential under testing. Low positivity rate suggests that an area has enough testing to properly monitor its outbreak. So because there are large racial disparities in COVID, this is not my own work, Tons of other people have shown this as well. We might imagine there would be racial disparities in the COVID positivity rate as well. And indeed, I found those in this paper. Other people have found these as well. And so my work in this paper was to sort of understand these racial disparities and positivity rates in the context of broader testing for discrimination and sort of contextualize them and suggest further tests that could help us better understand them. And I'm happy to talk more in detail about that if it's of interest. Yeah. Let's talk about outcome tests. You talk about outcome tests in your work. What do these measure? Yeah. So the reason outcome tests are interesting is because the positivity rate is a special type of outcome test. An outcome test is very broadly used to study racial disparities. And the key idea is let's look at the outcomes of decisions to understand whether those decisions are racially biased. So this emerges in policing, in lending, in lots of places. So for example, in the policing context, the decision is, should a police officer search someone to see if they have a weapon? And the outcome is, did that search actually find a weapon? And intuitively, if searches of white pedestrians are finding weapons 90% of the time, but searches of black pedestrians are finding weapons only 10% of the time, that difference in outcomes is worrisome, right? It suggests there may be some racial bias in the decision to search someone. Police are searching white pedestrians only if they're really likely to be carrying something, black pedestrians more at random. Similarly, if we look at the positivity rate, here the decision is, should we test someone for COVID? The outcome is, did that test find COVID? And if there are big racial disparities, like, you know, COVID tests of black patients are much more likely to find COVID than COVID tests of white patients, it suggests that people are being tested at different thresholds. So in all of these contexts and decisions, disparities in outcomes across races are worrisome because they suggest that different races may be facing different thresholds, and there's bias in decision-making in that way. Now, it turns out that outcome tests, in turn, have a statistical problem called inframarginality, which I can describe in more detail depending on how into the weeds you want to get. Yeah, let's go into that. So as I understand it, if we look at the black positivity rate and the Hispanic positivity rate as well, this is higher in a lot of states or maybe all states, according to the data, than the white positivity rate. Now, I can imagine there can be two possible explanations for this. One of them is that the per capita infection rates in black populations is higher than in white populations. And another explanation of this could be that black patients are being undertested relative to whites. So how do you think about determining which one of these two possible explanations it is? Yeah, so that's a really great question. And I think basically those two hypotheses summarize it pretty nicely. Consider this hypothetical example. Imagine, you know, there are just white patients, black patients, for simplicity, just two race groups. And imagine that among each race group, there are two easily distinguishable groups, those who are symptomatic for COVID and those who are not. Among the symptomatic group, 75% of black patients have COVID and only 50% of white patients have COVID. Among the asymptomatic group, 
5% have COVID, irrespective of race. And imagine that there is no racial bias in whom we test. We test everyone who is more than 10% likely to have COVID. So we apply the same threshold to everyone. So what's going to happen in this hypothetical example, we're going to test all the symptomatic patients, and we're going to end up with a positivity rate of 75% for black patients and 50% for white patients. So it's going to look like there's racial bias from looking at the positivity rate, even though by assumption in this purely hypothetical example, there is none. So this is sort of what you're saying, like if there are differences in prevalence across race groups, we might mistake that if we look naively at the positivity rate for differences in testing thresholds. And I should mention, by the way, that we can get misleading results in the other direction where we fail to find racial bias, even though there is racial bias in testing. So the way I get around this in this paper is by drawing on a test that was used in the policing literature to deal with a very similar problem. Basically, what we say is, let's try to simultaneously infer this threshold at which people are being tested, as well as the distribution of risk across different populations to kind of control for the fact that the prevalence of these things can vary between populations. And what we do is we use a latent Bayesian model to try and simultaneously infer these two things, and then we look at differences in the thresholds. And when I apply that test to COVID data or a slightly modified version of it, that's exactly what I find, that there are these racial disparities in testing thresholds with minority patients being tested at higher rates. So that's interesting in the COVID case specifically because it suggests racial bias in COVID testing and perhaps that we should try to increase the availability of testing in these minority populations. But I think it's also interesting in medicine more broadly because it suggests an analogy basically between the literature on testing for racial bias in policing and the literature on testing for racial bias in medical testing, which is something that people have long been concerned about. You mentioned your method of getting there as a latent Bayesian modeling. Could you describe maybe at a high level what this method does? Yeah. Basically, the observed data that you're fitting the model on are basically what fraction of the population is being tested among different race groups in different locations, and what fraction of those tests are coming back positive. And the things you're trying to infer are what threshold are people being tested at, and how does the prevalence of the disease vary between different race and location groups. And so this Bayesian model is providing a mapping between those unobserved quantities that you're interested in, like the threshold, and the observed data that you actually have. And intuitively, this is a little bit hand wavy, but intuitively, you know, if some race groups like have a far higher fraction of the population being tested, but a far lower fraction of those tests coming back positive, it suggests that maybe they're being tested at lower thresholds. Like tests are easy to get for them, even when they're very unlikely to have COVID. So then with this takeaway that we have different thresholds for testing for white patients and black patients, now that we understand this, what is the intervention that we could do to be able to decrease the inequality here? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a health policy question, right? And I, you know, so I'm not the most qualified person to weigh in on that. But I think trying to increase the availability of testing in these minority communities is definitely worth considering, particularly given, by the way, all the other evidence, some from my own other work, about how these communities can face higher risk due to differences in mobility patterns, and also like due to higher, you know, death rates, higher case rates etc. There's abundant evidence besides this particular work that points to that as an intervention. So this is maybe one example in which a test such as the one you're proposing might help. Are there other applications both within COVID and other medical conditions where we can apply these threshold tests? 
Totally. So, I mean, you might be interested in disparities in testing in other COVID situations, like maybe across age groups or across locations or something like this. And I think the methods for looking at this would be analogous. You know, assessing under testing in medical context more broadly is also very interesting. Like, could we look at disparities in which, you know, across race groups and people being biopsied for cancer or something like this? I think that would be extremely interesting. And I'm still sort of actively thinking about circumstances where we might be able to try to assess that. We know that there is broader concern about racial disparities in under-testing, you know, whether it's from cardiac conditions to lung disease to depression, etc. So people have previously studied this, and it's something that people are worried about. So I think finding a setting where you could really apply exactly these tools, basically you would need data broken down by race, maybe broken down by like location or hospital on how often are people getting tested, how often are those tests coming back positive. And in those settings, these methods would be applicable. So I want to talk about one of your recent studies, which you co-first authored, that's been published in Nature, and it looks at modeling how COVID spreads. And I found it fascinating. So in response to stay-at-home orders now, there's been a lot of public debate about how to decide when to reopen or which places are safe to return to or how much activity we should allow. Can you maybe start by just describing how your work, which captures the effects of changes in virus spread, may help inform these decisions? Totally. So what we do is we take cell phone mobility data basically on where people come from and where they go based on their cell phones. And we use this to build a detailed model of how the virus spreads and how mobility in particular affects the spread of the virus. And this is useful because it enables you to answer questions that depend in a very intimate way on mobility, right? Intuitively, like we all know this at this point, the spread of the virus depends a lot on where we're going out and where we're going out to and so on. And so our model enables you to answer sort of fine-grained questions like what would happen if we reopened restaurants? but only from 3 to 5 p.m. and only to 60% capacity? Or why are certain neighborhoods getting infected at higher rates? Stuff like this. In order to understand questions like this, models that don't capture people's fine-grained movements aren't sufficient. Got it. So you'll basically capture information about different places and or what you call in the paper points of interests. So for example, square footage or hourly number of visitors or median visit duration and use that information to basically answer what if questions. So, you know, what would happen, you know, if you opened religious organizations or if you opened grocery stores? I'm curious if you ever thought about potentially being able to put this model in the hands of policymakers, or is the idea to be able to share this models with other researchers to just be able to glean more and more insight? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I think a very important caveat in our initial analysis is that we look at data from the spring, right? We analyze data from the first wave of infections from March to May 2020. Obviously, many things have changed since then. And so that important caveat ought to be kept in mind, right? And so to some extent, you know, those conclusions from that initial wave of infections are certainly of interest to to researchers in terms of trying to understand the dynamics of infection, but ought to be taken with some grain of salt in terms of guiding current policy. But we're also working on updating the model so it runs on more recent data, and I think that's an important step in terms of contributing to policy decisions. 
And where are you getting this mobility data from? Yes, that's a great question. So our mobility data comes from a company called SafeGraph. And SafeGraph, basically what they do um, is they take data uh, from cell phones, from apps that track location, from users who consent to the use of their data in this way. And what they've done is they've taken the data and they've aggregated it and anonymized it. So a very important point here is that we're not working with individual level data tracking individual movements. Our data is of the form, basically, 50 people from this neighborhood with thousands of people went to this store at this hour or something like this. It's all aggregated data, but it comes from cell phone movements. Can you maybe tell us what you found? Or were there specific points of interest that you found that were specifically problematic? Yeah. So again, I think the caveat with this analysis being from the spring is very, very important to keep in mind. But one analysis we do do in the paper, which I don't know, people got interested in for some reason, is basically what we do is we say, look, let's compare two counterfactual situations. Imagine that on May 1, 2020, you reopen a given category of businesses like restaurants or grocery stores or so on fully. So you return them to their pre-pandemic levels of mobility. How would the number of infections compare in that scenario to the scenario where you just keep them at lockdown levels of mobility? Like how many more infections would you have? And what we find is that certain categories of businesses, restaurants being one, cause a particularly large increase in the number of predicted infections if they're fully reopened. One very obvious reason for this is just like there are a ton of restaurants, right? So it's not necessarily saying something about the individual risk of individual restaurants. I think a lot of people have conflated this with this is how risky it is for you as an individual person to go to a restaurant. That is not the interpretation of the result, both because it is from the spring and many things have changed since then, but also because we model the category as an aggregate. We also don't model things like mask wearing, etc. Hmm. And would you say that a lot of the reason why you saw this spread in, say, restaurants is because of density of people just in a small space? Is that sort of the hypothesis that you guys had? So in general, categories that we rate as more risky to reopen can be so for a number of reasons, one of which is that there are a lot of them. But another is that they tend to be crowded and visitors tend to stay longer there. Yes. I'm curious how you validated a model like this. So you build this great model. How do you check that it's working the way that you intended it to work? Totally. Yeah. So I think that's a great question. And I think in general, validation of COVID models, particularly based on early COVID data, um, is difficult because the data was like very noisy, right? There were dramatic underreporting of cases and even underreporting of deaths and so on. But what we did basically to validate our model is our model gives us as output predicted case counts in each city or metropolitan area. And you can compare those predicted case counts with the observed case counts in each metropolitan area. And so we do that and we we find it lines up pretty well, including in what we would call out-of-sample predictions. So basically, you calibrate the model using data only up through a certain time, like April 15th, and then you assess how well it performs after that time. And the model continues to do reasonably well in that circumstance. We also compare the model to a couple simple baselines, one that doesn't use mobility data at all, one that uses mobility data, but only sort of in an aggregate form. And we also find that we get a better fit to observed case counts than the those simple baselines. But I think the takeaway, actually, at least for me, is not that we 
we have some like super duper deep learning predictive model. We don't use deep learning, by the way, to be clear, but rather that we have a model that fits the observed and very noisy data reasonably well. And furthermore, that we're able to use it to draw conclusions that are pretty robust to like various changes in the model. Like even if the model isn't completely right, hopefully those conclusions should be reasonably robust. One of those conclusions relates to inequality and in infection rates and why there's inequality in spread. And we sort of do a bunch of robustness checks to, to sort of show that high level conclusions like that should hopefully persist. Yeah, let's talk about that more. Can you explain what you found there and what the takeaways were? Yeah, so th this was one of the most interesting things to me just due to the really staggering inequalities in COVID infection rates. Like maybe, I, maybe I'm naive, but I do kind of study this for a living. And like, it was amazing even to me, like how large the disparities in case counts and death counts are. So basically, you know, you might say, well, why are there these inequalities? It's possible maybe they're just due to like pre-existing conditions or differences in access to care or things like this. But another hypothesis is that it might have something to do with differences in mobility patterns. You know, we know, for example, that people of lower socioeconomic status are less likely to be able to work from home and might plausibly face higher risk. So the questions we asked are sort of, well, can you naturally predict these observed disparities in infection rates from mobility data alone? And furthermore, can you understand why they're happening? Can you provide some mechanism if you do indeed observe them? So the first thing we find is like, yes, the model does naturally predict that people from lower income neighborhoods and from neighborhoods based with lower fractions of residents who are white, experience higher infection rates. So it does predict the observed disparities using only mobility data. But the other interesting thing is that it provides two reasons why these disparities occur. The first reason is pretty intuitive. It's just that people from these neighborhoods were not able to reduce their mobility by as much. And this is very consistent with what we know about how they're more likely to be essential workers. So they have to go out more, they face higher risks, this is bad. But a second reason is slightly subtler. It's that when they do go out, even to places within the same category, they tend to go to places that are more crowded and denser and therefore more dangerous. So like, for example, if someone from a low-income neighborhood, high-income neighborhood, both go to the grocery store, the person from the low-income neighborhood is going to tend to go to a grocery store that is more dangerous. And this is very consistent with what we know about sort of the correlation between population density and income. Lower-income people tend to live in denser areas. It makes sense in turn that their grocery stores are denser and more dangerous. Wow, that's fascinating. In some sense, it's a promising finding because it suggests that these disparities are not the inevitable product of inequalities that we cannot change, right? That they can be influenced by policy. So potentially, you know, you can make it so it's easier for people to stay home. You can make it so that you distribute masks to them or, or things like this so that when they do go out, they face lower risk. These are things that are potentially malleable in a way that like if these disparities were totally due to differences in like pre-existing conditions, it's not totally clear uh, that you can do about that. These disparities aren't set in stone. They're the product of policy that, in fact, can potentially be changed. Did you receive any type of feedback or response from policymakers or journalists in response to this research and that surprised you or that you were happy about or not happy about? I guess I was surprised by how interested people were in the restaurant result. People are very interested in restaurants being particularly dangerous if reopened as a category. And to me, that was somewhat less interesting because, you know, we're not the first people to find this. This is not news, guys. Uh, so I thought that was sort of interesting. You know, there has been a lot of journalistic interest in the paper. And to me, the most interesting part of it is the inequality part. But a lot of people were very interested in sort of which POI categories, point of interest categories were particularly dangerous. I guess just to wrap up on this specific work of yours, would you say that there were sort of high level policy recommendations that you and your co-authors made at the very end? 
Regarding the inequality piece, I mean, I think one thing our results imply is that it's very important to study the effects of policy, not just on the population as a whole, but on disadvantaged groups specifically. We actually show in our paper in simulations of the effects of reopening policies that a given policy can have considerably different effects on some groups than on other groups. And so it's important to study disadvantaged populations specifically. And in fact, the Biden transition team explicitly gestured to this, you know, in their plan for combating COVID, that we should be looking at these disparities in health outcomes. And our results very much substantiate that idea. I would add, you know, there's sort of an analog in the machine learning literature to this idea as well. You shouldn't just be studying how your model performs on the population as a whole. You should also be studying how your model performs, you know, on historically underserved populations. This is sort of analogous, I think, to that. Can you give maybe one example of a type of policy outcome that would have a different effect on disadvantaged groups versus not disadvantaged groups? You know, intuitively, if you reopen some POI category, for example, some point of interest category, right? And that point of interest category is much more dangerous for some groups than for other groups, like grocery stores are much more dangerous in your city for lower income populations and for higher income populations, that it's plausible that reopening grocery stores will have a differential impact on these two groups, for example. We don't look specifically at that scenario in our paper, but that's sort of an example. You've done work on health disparities beyond the COVID setting as well. Recently, you and your co-authors had a paper in Nature Medicine exploring unexplained pain disparities in underserved populations. Could you describe this problem that you were working on? Totally, yes. So the broad problem we're studying is that pain is very widespread in society, and it's also unequally distributed. So it you know, it hits underserved populations particularly hard. Now, the specific setting in which we look at this is knee osteoarthritis, which is one of the most common causes of disabling pain in older adults. And as in many other causes of pain, there are racial and socioeconomic disparities in knee osteoarthritis pain. So patients from disadvantaged racial and socioeconomic groups experience greater pain. Here's sort of the interesting mystery. These pain disparities persist even when you control for how severe the doctor thinks the disease is based on looking at an x-ray of the patient's knee. So the goal of our paper is basically to understand that mystery. Why are there these pain gaps even when you control for how severe the doctor rates the disease in the knee x-ray? And can you maybe walk us through what the two hypotheses were that you were exploring for explaining these disparities? Yeah. So basically, the first hypothesis is like, look, maybe there are factors outside the knee, nothing to do with the knee, which are causing disadvantaged patients to experience greater pain, even when the knee disease is no more severe. So this isn't some like crazy hypothesis we came up with ourselves. What might these factors be? You know, stuff like greater life stress, for example, or worse access to pain medication. But the important point is, whatever it is, it can't be seen in a knee x-ray, right? And that's why controlling for the doctor's assessment of the knee doesn't suffice to narrow that gap. But there's a second possibility as well, right, which are that there are pain-related factors within the knee, which aren't being captured by standard clinical measures of osteoarthritis severity, but that would explain these disadvantaged groups' greater pain levels. So under the first hypothesis, there's nothing that could be seen in the knee x-ray that would narrow this pain gap. And under the second hypothesis, there is. So what we do is we basically use a machine learning approach to try to look for this additional signal in the knee x-ray. Specifically, we train uh, a machine learning algorithm, a deep learning algorithm, so like a convolutional neural network, to try to predict pain from an x-ray of the knee 
And using that algorithmic severity score, we say, look, when we control for that algorithmic measure of severity, does that narrow the pain gap more than controlling for the clinician's measure of severity? And in fact, we find that it does. We find that when you control for the algorithm's assessment of how severe the knee disease is, you can narrow these racial and socioeconomic disparities in pain by about two to five times more than when you control for the clinical severity measures. Overall, this suggests that clinical severity measures fail to capture all the physical knee features that might explain higher pain levels among disadvantaged groups. Can we talk a second about what those radiographic measures that currently exist are? So before this deep learning model that you've built, what are the measures that are being used today and why are they problematic? Yeah, so a primary measure we study in our paper, although we study other ones as well as a robustness check, is what's called Kelgren-Lorentz grade. So Kelgren-Lorentz grade is a zero to four scale. It's a categorical scale based on the doctor examining an x-ray of the knee. You know, it measures various clinical features of osteoarthritis, like, you know, whether there are bone spurs, how much joint space narrowing there is, stuff like this. But the important point about Kelgren-Lorentz grade is that it was developed decades ago in heavily white British populations populations. And so it's plausible, right, that it might not capture all the factors that contribute to pain in modern and more diverse populations who may live and work very differently, right, might not capture all the occupational factors, for example, that contribute to pain in these populations. And just so I understand this, so let's say I'm a patient experiencing knee pain, there's going to be an x-ray that's taken of my knee. And then at the same time, am I going to input what I consider to be my level of pain? Or is this something that a doctor asked me and they put in a score? Yeah, that's a great question. So the measure of pain we use in our study um, is called the Coos Pain Subscore. And I should mention, by the way, that it's not quite collected in a traditional hospital setting, right? Like this is like a large academic study of osteoarthritis. And so it's collected in a standardized way, perhaps more standardized than you would see in a, in a hospital setting. Anyway. How is the Coos pain subscore collected? Uh, basically, the doctor asks you a bunch of questions like how much pain do you feel when doing various activities like, you know, bending your knee, climbing upstairs. The patient gives the, their answers to these questions, and then these are aggregated into a single score called Coos pain subscore. So it's based on sort of the patient's subjective report of their own pain. Got it. So there are two different scorings going on here, one of them on the pain and then one of them on the severity, which is not in communication with the patient. That one's only looking at the image. And then there is a radiologist who's trained to look at the image giving a score. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah. And I think one way our study differs from sort of the traditional medical machine learning setting is that in a traditional setting, often you'll be training a model to replicate the doctor's clinical judgment, right? Which here is that Kelgren-Lorentz grade, right? You'll be training a model to try to predict Kelgren-Lorentz grade as well as possible. And in fact, multiple papers have been written on exactly that task, which is fine as far as it goes. But the problem is, if that clinical measure is by hypothesis biased or incomplete, then you're going to be training a model to replicate clinical knowledge, which is biased or incomplete. So what we're doing is we're training the model to learn from the patient directly by training training it to predict that Coos pain subscore. And so what did you find? What was the result of the CNN that you guys trained? Yeah, so I guess there are sort of two primary results. The first is that the model does find additional signal for predicting pain in the patient's knee image. So if you look at sort of how well does our model predict pain as compared to how well does the clinician's Kelgren-Lorentz grade predict pain, the model does explain uh, slightly more of the variance in pain. 
So that's sort of the first result. But I think the second and more important result, because honestly, neither of these things predicts pain all that well. So the second and more important result is that when you control for the model's prediction of pain, that algorithmic pain score, it does more to narrow racial and socioeconomic disparities in pain than does controlling for the clinician's severity score. And this is sort of suggesting that the clinician's severity score is failing to capture all the knee features, which would explain disadvantaged patients' greater pain levels. And so it narrows that gap, but does it fully explain these sort of outsized levels of pain that you're seeing among Black patients? No. And I think that's a great question. Yeah. So it does more to narrow the gap, but a residual gap still remains. And, you know, I think why that residual gap remains is an interesting question. One possibility is that, like, the model is imperfect. You know, we discuss in the paper, maybe you could do a better job by using a more sophisticated model or having more data or something like this. Another possibility is that, you know, there are additional additional outside the knee factors like higher life stress, which are still playing some of a role, just not as much of a role as we would have thought from using the clinician subscore. I'd love to just quickly give our listeners an idea of what the implications of these types of pain disparities are. So can you maybe give us some examples of why this is actually problematic and is not just sort of an, an arbitrary pain score that we should be ignoring? Totally. Yeah. So I think there are kind of two important implications here from our work. So one thing is these severity scores, like Helgren-Lorentz grade, are one of the factors that influence the allocation of knee surgery. So if you go to the doctor in a lot of pain and she says, I'm sorry, I can't see anything wrong in your knee, which would explain these higher pain levels, she's not that likely to operate on an apparently healthy knee, which makes sense, right? But if you go to her in a lot of pain and you say, like, look, uh, she says, oh, yeah, I can see exactly in the x-ray what's wrong with your knee then you're more likely under clinical guidelines to get surgery. So what this means is that if these severity scores are failing to pick up on relevant knee features, it can potentially influence surgery decisions and contribute to lesser access to surgery in these disadvantaged populations. A more optimistic way to put that is potentially using algorithmic measures which better pick up on these pain-related features in underserved populations could potentially reduce sort of disparities in access to surgery among those groups. That's one important implication. A second implication we find, or sort of a second result we find, which is sort of maybe a broader interest, is we find that one of the reasons the algorithm does a better job of narrowing these pain gaps is because it's trained on a racially and socioeconomically diverse population. So we do an experiment where we basically try removing all the black people from the trained data set. And we find that the model still outperforms the clinician subscore, but it doesn't do as well. And so this implies that sort of diversity of the data set is an important contributor to model performance. And that has implication for machine learning practitioners, of course, but it also has implications for the design of medical studies. It suggests that like, it's really important to try to get, you know, racial and other dimensions of diversity in the data sets that you're using for designing all all sorts of things. That's awesome. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I do think that that's a really important takeaway, the, both of them, but, but specifically the latter one in terms of how important it is to have these diverse data sets. Even to your first point, you know, if you have a lower likelihood of actually getting surgery for some type of illness or disease that you have, right, there are sort of downstream effects that could come of that, which is maybe a greater reliance on pharmaceuticals or, right, we sort of forget that it's not just that, you know, you have to live with osteoarthritis in your knee. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, you know, there are economic consequences. You know, you might be disabled, be unable to work. Like, yeah, I mean, this is not pain like, oh, my finger's slightly sore. Like, this is like debilitating, life-altering kinds of things. Thanks again for sharing your very important work on the subject. I'm curious, as someone who's spent many years working at this intersection of AI, medicine, and 
disparities in health. What advice would you have for budding ML researchers? Yeah, I don't know if this is advice so much as a plea, which is, you know, to try and work on problems that make the world better and not just, you know, in a trivial way and not just for people who who are the very richest people. You know, I think if you're interested in machine learning and good at it, you know, you've been given a great gift. You've sort of been given superpowers, which can affect the world in all sorts of ways, uh, some of which are destabilizing and, and, and negative to society, and some of which really make it better. And so my plea to you would be choose jobs that will make the world better and, and more equitable. Technical abilities in machine learning are extremely important. Like you should pay attention in your classes and do Kaggle competitions and all these things to level up your technical skills. But I think another thing that really determines your impact is not how good at math are you or how good at coding are you or whatever, but also the problems you choose to work on. You know, if you choose to just, I don't know, work at a hedge fund and make billionaires still richer, it doesn't really matter how good at math you are. You know, your social impact of that may still be net negative. And so I really advise you to give a lot of thought to your problem choice, because that may be profoundly determinative of whether your impact on the world is beneficial or not. Emma, thank you so much. It's been uh, wonderful. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And that's all, folks. A big thank you to Dr. Emma Pearson for talking to us today. And thank you for listening. We're your hosts, Pranav and Atrial. And until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee. Music by Ethan A. Chi. If you like what we just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.